Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics. Data analysis and important topics from around the world of paramedic practice from the College of Paramedics. Hello and welcome to another Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics. This afternoon I'm with Islam Fakir who is the chair of our diversity steering group at the College of Paramedics. Um, hi Izzy, how are you doing? Uh, hello there, yeah not so bad. Thank you for the introduction Gary. As uh, Gary just said my name is Islam Fakir. Although everyone calls me Izzy, I am the proud to be the chair of the college's very first diversity steering group. I work in sunny Yorkshire as a clinical pathways manager for Yorkshire Ambulance Service. And thank you for having me. Oh, great stuff. Um, for our listeners, we, we're uh, launching this podcast along with one that uh, Izzy and I recorded, along with uh, Shamela Data, who was working for CCAM a couple of years ago. We recorded that one in January 2018, and it was when, as a, an organisation, we were first starting to think about um, how issues of diversity, equality, discrimination uh, might impact upon the paramedic profession uh, and, and what we should be doing about it as an organisation. And it's great to see that the uh, diversity group has, has come to life, uh, partly as a result of that. Um, uh, it's great to have you as the chair, Izzy. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the journey and how the whole thing has, has come about. I mean, obviously, the journey started with yourself uh, all that time ago with the podcast that we recorded. But I mean, prior to that, this was before I was uh, possibly a year or two before we met. I contacted the college and just out of interest, you know, and around me starting my own journey around exploring diversity. And especially, you know, organisational, what's the makeup of our organisations, etc. How many paramedics do we have from a diverse background, etc. I contacted the college and asked them for some information. I was very surprised for them to turn around and say they didn't hold that information because they didn't feel as though, you know, they needed to or had to, etc. So the conversation actually started from there. Uh, uh-huh. and speaking with Kirsty, she put me in touch with yourself. And uh, we recorded that podcast, you know, all them years ago, so to speak. But a lot's obviously happened since then. I mean, I've obviously become a little bit more knowledgeable around diversity and the importance of that. I've been involved in making up staff networks, and that's been through uh, my trade union experience as well as within my uh, own organisation. And obviously, you know, all of that has sort of like amalgamated into us having this diversity in steering group within the College of Paramedics, which I'm very proud to have obviously helped set up. I've not done that on my own. You know, it's come together, you know, with obviously the open hands of the college, uh, people like yourself, obviously Kirsty for putting us in touch. But then, you know, all of the steering group that we have with the college obviously bring in their own speciality. So it's not just around um, BME people. There's obviously LGBT issues, disability issues, trans issues, you know, we, we cover all the protected characteristics. And obviously that group is set up with a view of making things better for the membership, understanding the membership and what their needs are. Um, and just to have some strategic involvement and decision-making and guidance for the college around what we should be doing. 
to help our membership? Yeah, thanks, Izzy. It, it, it's been um, an interesting journey because I think we first had to realise as an organisation that we need to take a, a long, hard look at the way we do things, as indeed every organisation in the UK does, to ensure that we're being fair to the diverse needs of all our members. And, and if that all sounds a little bit um, nebulous, I, I think when you describe uh, the, the, the folk that are represented on the group, uh, we're talking about um, predominantly folk who, uh, as you say, are described as having protected characteristics under the Equality Act, but also just recognising that everyone's different and, and that we've got paramedics with uh, long-term health conditions and disabilities. We've got paramedics of um, all the various uh, sexual orientations and, uh, and genders. We've got paramedics from um, multiple uh, racial backgrounds. And I think we have occasionally been accused of being a, a, a bit of a, a white, middle, white man's middle-aged club um, and, and the way some of our conferences looked. And we felt like we needed to look harder and, and change the the shape of what we did and really just make sure that we're looking after the, the needs of all our members so um you know it, it, it's great to have your experiences there I, I know um you've done a lot of work with your trade union over uh, issues related to uh, black and minority ethnic work in particular but also i know that you're you're well aware of some of the um, uh, issues uh, around the other groups uh, particularly um uh, disability and, and long-term health conditions I guess it's a journey, isn't it? And the group is, is still really very much in its infancy. What 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 would be your vision for, for the work of this group going forward? I mean, just going back to, I mean, I'll talk about the vision, obviously, uh, but just going back to what you've said around, obviously, highlighting the makeup and obviously you're describing it as sort of like quite pale, you know, without pointing the finger. In defence, I think what I found it, you know, through my journey, sometimes I can ask, why haven't we got this? Or why can't we see with this? Or why can't we see that? A lot of the times, you know, when you speak to people, they just don't see it <laughs> until you actually, you know, point out figures, numbers, statistics. And I always turn on now and I always make a point of looking to the left and looking to the right and asking people what they can't see. So that's not me pointing the finger. That's me obviously giving a little bit of defence and, in the sense where sometimes you become a little bit insulated or insular around it and don't actually realise that it is a problem until it's sort of like pointed out, which at times people might be a little bit cynical and say, well, no, you know, how can you not notice? But sometimes you don't, do you? People just carry on with the norm, accepting the norms, okay, so to speak. In terms of the vision of the group, I mean, I'm obviously very proud to be, you know, the chair of this group, you know, and it's a culmination of a lot of hard work and effort you know, on the college's part and also the people that are involved within the group and all the support instructors, etc. But, you know, my vision for the group is obviously to work strategically. We've all got our strands of work. So, you know, highlighting where there is inequality anywhere, you know, improving that sort of like with factual data and numbers and look to influence other organisations. Because ultimately, as you've said, you know, yes, the group is in its infancy, but the paramedic profession is in its, in its infancy. However, with what's going on in the world, I mean, not just around BME issues, but ultimately fairness, you know, and equity for everyone, so to speak. You know, we want a fair society, we want a fair organisation. You know, we want we want tolerance, we want fairness, and everyone just wants to be treated equally. And it's just feeding into those organisations as well as their own and, and, you know, putting those views across 
in a constructive manner where we all work together because let's be in no doubt, nobody can do this on their own. We have all got to work together, you know, to to promote harmony and fairness and obviously equality across our profession because ultimately where you have equity uh, and equality, you know, um, across the board, so to speak, then you will see fairness and that will obviously, you know, transmit where we're dealing with others, which is mainly the public, isn't it, so to speak? Yeah, and, and I think um, I would say that you know, in this profession and, and health professions in general, none of us set out to be unfair, none of us set out to be, uh, you know, treat one person better than another, but we have our hidden characteristics of our own thinking that, that we've brought up with that, that may affect the way we work uh, you, you, we've talked a lot previously about hidden discrimination and, and how it emerges but also how you can spot it in different organizations you know this uh, the, the particularly when you look at the, the senior levels across the NHS uh, and how different groups are represented uh, and the other thing that uh, I, I vividly remember learning from that um, early chat with yourself and Shamila is that for uh, at many levels it's it's still you know, your gender whether you're male or female is still an issue uh, and I remember Shamila saying that she probably had you know uh, more sort of uh, discriminatory uh, things happen to her through being a woman than, than through being a non-white person. Yeah, and again, I suppose that broad it brings up the wider subject in how we look upon each other as individuals. So you know, stereotyping, say for example, a woman, in the sense of say you know maybe wanting to advance a career, et cetera, and maybe someone having a bias thinking, well, she might be going off soon to have a baby, but that shouldn't matter, should it? But we have these hidden hidden biases, well, not hidden biases, but we have these sorts of thoughts, not me personally, but I have seen it uh, within the organisation where these thoughts are sort of like maybe brought up, brought up, but I mean, I have challenged them um, in that sense, but then that is a wider conversation around maybe looking at yourself and your own biases and and, and addressing those, so to speak, and then ultimate fairness. So for anyone uh, listening at some point in the future, we're having this chat on the 10th of June, 2020. And that means that we're about 12 weeks into the response to COVID-19 in the UK. Uh, I know that um, there's a lot of things we need to discuss around COVID and its impact on uh, minority groups uh, and on, on uh, people with disabilities and long-term health conditions and so on but I know it's also brought a lot of uh, a big challenge for you personally Izzy and I know you, you've written about this for the college you want to just tell us a little bit about your own experiences and, and how you, you've got through this so far? So I mean for me I mean I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole blog because that's something that I'd like everyone to read so to speak but I mean when this all came about um, Covid when it started coming on the news you never think it's going to affect you um, or you start thinking back to SARS and MERS and you think, you know, it won't come here, it'll just go away. But when it did come here, it was a little bit frightening for me in the sense where I started to worry, thinking, I'm, you know, I'm I'm someone that sort of like, you know, identifies as disabled. I've had a kidney transplant. I've had various other health issues. Uh, I've been on dialysis, so to speak. I'm on immunosuppressives. And obviously oh. the impact that that's going to have on me, uh, and not just on me, on my family as well, it's been six or seven years since I've had my transplant and, you know, everything's been going absolutely fine. But obviously, as we know, this this disease, it doesn't discriminate against anyone. Um, you know, it affects absolutely everyone or it can do, so to speak. 
So for me, my substantive role is within the emergency operations centre, working as a clinical advisor. Uh, my fears were obviously going into a control room, working with 60, 70 people, I was thinking it's obviously not going to be really good for my health. Um, mm. At the time, I was on secondment as a clinical pathways manager. But as the disease took hold, secondments were ended and we were all told to go back to our substantive positions. Not so long after that, I was told I had to shield. I don't think anything can prepare you, you know, for obviously some of the, well, the experience that I've obviously gone through, which is quite isolated and quite lonely. So some people will say, well, at least you're on your own um, and, you know, you're safe, so to speak. And that is exactly the view that I had. But it's really lonely. I'm literally in my bedroom on my own. I can't hug my children. I watch them through the window, so to speak. And it was actually talking to Imogen. She said, well, you've got to remember, you know, when you're in isolation, normally it's a punishment, which I suppose it is, which is weird, isn't it? Because it isn't really a punishment. It's keeping you safe. However, it does affect your mental health. And it is quite lonely, so to speak. So it has been quite challenging for me. And it, is, it still is so. I mean, I know with what's going on, Obviously, out there, I know things are supposed to be easing, etc. However, I mean, there's still people dying every day. I know personally of a couple of people with that organisation that have passed. I had my auntie and her son that passed away. I've not been able to grieve for them or go visit the family or anything because of the fact, obviously, I'm considered very high risk, so to speak. So it has been quite challenging. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing uh something of that experience it, it, it it's um it's very powerful and, and very open of you to uh you know, let us know a bit of that and, and and you're so sorry for the losses that have happened in your family and and in the ambulance family in yorkshire and, and everywhere else it's been it's been devastating hasn't it covid it, it has it, it has and it hasn't discriminated i guess in some ways because it's indiscriminate and, and random in how it, it strikes people but it also seems to have had a very disproportionate effect on uh, people with long-term health conditions, disabilities, and also on, on uh, black and, uh, and uh, other minority uh, ethnic communities. Uh, any, any thoughts about that, Missy? Yeah, I mean, we discussed this before, didn't we, so to speak, in and around, obviously, the effect it's having on BME communities. And in fairness, it's having an effect on all communities, but more disproportionately as you know, for BME communities. And I know they don't really know why, but we know, obviously, you know, the disease itself, it, it doesn't, it, it can affect anyone, so to speak, but more so those with long-term health conditions. So, I mean, we know um, statistically, you know, within the BME population, there's more people that might suffer with high blood pressure, diabetes, etc. And, you know, this disease is obviously sort of like deemed to, affect those sorts of categories of people more, so to speak. But I suppose looking at it, you know, from a different angle, so to speak, is obviously, you know, we know a lot of BME communities suffer sort of like health inequalities. They're, they're, they're proportionally, you know, they're maybe not higher skilled workers, etc. They might be living three or four generations of family together, so to speak. So that may have an, uh, an effect on that. Um, and I know there's been not much work done on that, but that's something that may come out later. So, so I mean, those are all the sorts of things, obviously, maybe that make the BME population more susceptible to to um, obviously catching this disease. I mean, I was reading somewhere, and I can't remember whether it were 
17 or 18 times more likely if you were a taxi driver or something to catch it. But then again, I suppose, if you think about it rationally, if you're coming into contact with that amount of people in that sort of line of work, then maybe you are going to sort of like be more prone to, to catch it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think also, um, you know, we have communities in this country of of, of all races, and maybe I should stop using the, the word um, minority because um, if you grew up in that particular area, you're not in a minority. Uh, but wherever there's um, high density housing, whether there's low income work or or lack of work, uh, wherever people are, are kind of um, you know the whole sort of uh, structure of um, you know, poverty in this country that that's had a huge impact, hasn't it? And it's it's very easy to map uh, the, the sort of uh, the high impact areas of COVID to to the places of, of uh, density of population and and um, you know relatively poorer communities. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't obviously. Um, there's lots of BME communities in which obviously. You know, they live together in a high proportion in different areas, so to speak. But, I mean, at the same time, they might be living in an overcrowded household in a deprived area or obviously have jobs that expose them to high risk, which we've just spoken about. You know, whether it be uh, working as a taxi driver, a bus driver, healthcare assistant. So even within the sort of like ambulance service, you know, you're, you're coming into contact with people, aren't you, so to speak, uh, which is obviously increasing the risk. However, when they're going home, to their families and if in their households they've got people that suffer with high blood pressure diabetes etc that's going to increase the risk even more isn't it so to speak however it, it just not it's not just bme communities i would turn on and argue you know where you're living in deprived areas there's going to be other people that are obviously you know struggling so to speak and, and living in those sorts of areas and then it goes with obviously your health inequalities and and you know um, the illnesses that obviously people suffer, but then there's another aspect of that also, isn't that you know I'm fortunate to live in a house and get with a garden, etc. There'll be lots of people out there living in houses, flats, etc. That don't have gardens, etc. Might have two, three families living in the house, which may increase that risk even further. Yeah, the interesting thing from the paramedic profession and the ambulance world is we see this um, variety of of life and the structures of life in the UK on a daily basis don't we we uh, we have the privilege of entering people's homes uh, yeah. you, whether it's um, on a, um, a social housing estate in a high-rise or, or whether it's a relative affluent area and I think we, we're only just beginning to tap into what parents can learn about and contribute to the whole uh, public health agenda and, and health equalities agenda and of course you know, equalities bring us right back to where we started mm. um, the, the word diversity, in, in a way, for some people, it's, it's lost its meaning a little bit. Um, we want to celebrate the, the diverse nature of, of human life and, and treat people as, as equals and, and a better understanding of public health and health inequalities will, will help us to do that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a complex subject as well, isn't it? And especially with what's going on in the world as well. I think we owe it to ourselves to understand you know, each other a little bit better, have a little bit of tolerance, have a little bit of respect. I mean, me personally, I'll I'll be the first to turn on and say I don't know about every other religion or community, etc. But one of the uh, one of the things we were discussing at work um, was obviously, you know, where we have obviously we've just recently had Eid, 
explaining to staff at work what it means, you know, what Muslims do and I'm fasting, etc. and then going to the mosque and praying and what Eid means. It's obviously just having an understanding around all our communities and, you know, what each religion stands for, or even for maybe those that don't believe in a religion. Um, and just having a little bit of tolerance and a bit of understanding, which is obviously insightful for, for, for the person learning. Yeah, 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 that, that's right, yeah, yeah. And slightly different subject, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, I think when you look at the organisations we work in, um, particularly uh, different NHS organisations, it is noticeable, isn't it, that um, uh, people with some of the protected characteristics that uh, exist under the Equality Act, you're far less likely to see those people in the more senior management and leadership positions. Yeah. And one of the things that I've learned from um, chatting to yourself and Shabila and others is that that has an impact on uh, the organisation, whether that's uh, an ambulance service, a hospital trust, a, a, a GP practice, whatever that organisation is, if it doesn't uh, somehow reflect the community that it serves, it will it will skew the service it offers a little bit. To well, some extent, it, won't it? Interestingly, say that actually, I was doing a little bit of work around uh, an equality impact assessment I was doing earlier in the year in another role that we're doing at um, Yorkshire Ambulance Service. And I think the numbers that we had recorded on the staff scorecard around how many people recognised as disabled was really, really low. Um, however, upon reading some literature, you know, it became clear that people are actually afraid to disclose the disabilities in case that obviously has a ramification or a repercussion on their career advancement or causes bias, etc. So, for example, I think... I think within our local survey, we didn't we did within the within our own ambulance service. I think that being eight, I think eight or ten percent that had responded and identified a disabled. However, when you looked at the NHS staff survey, I think it was more like twenty five twenty five percent of people recognised as identified as disabled, which I thought was really really interesting because obviously that was anonymised. Staff were quite happy to disclose the disability to the NHS National St- Staff Survey, but they were more reluctant to do so within their own organisational survey. I suppose that goes down to um, fear, retribution, uh, tolerance, um, thinking it may affect their career as you know opportunities in the future. Yeah, and I wonder if um, it's also related to this, um, I think now old-fashioned idea that if you're disabled, you, you can't work for the ambulance service, uh, which um, is, is a, a false definition of the word disabled. Obviously, there are, you know, if you if you're talking about frontline uh, responding in ambulance roles, there are certain disabilities that would prevent you from carrying out that role. For example, if you're visual, if you're severely visually impaired, you probably can't drive an ambulance at high speed. But there's not that. Yeah, but I think it's important to reiterate, obviously, each person should be judged on their own merit, so to speak. So as opposed to saying, well, this person suffers with this, it's a blanket ban. I mean, I was told that when I had my transplant and I went on to, I had to go into insulin because of my transplant and I was told I was no longer allowed to drive. And I challenged that. Um, and yeah. so where does it say that I can't drive? And I challenged that. And in the end, we ended up de- developing a policy you know, for safe driving miles, obviously using insulin. And obviously it was a lengthy process. And for me, 
it's more not around the fact oh, oh I wanted to drive with the blue lights on and stuff. It's it's taking something away from me that I work very hard for. Um, yeah. Wouldn't want to put patients at risk. However, I'd never had a hypo. My diabetes were absolutely you know brilliantly controlled. Uh, but interestingly enough, there was another colleague who was on insulin and was allowed to drive, and there was no issues with that. However, I was told that I couldn't. So I mean, yeah. I wanted fairness. I wanted the quality. So I challenge that. So I just a note of caution there in the sense of, yes, there is those sorts of attitudes, but then that's not good leadership, is it? It's, no. it's looking, it's not looking at a particular, it's just looking at a particular disability and you should be looking at what the person can do. And, exo- you know, end of day, yes, you might have a disability, but that doesn't mean they throw you in the scrap heap. And, you know, you can't do it anymore. We are capable of doing things. I mean, it may well be, it might take us a little bit longer. We might need a different piece of equipment to help us. And I'm not saying that is going to be the case in every single person. There may well be a disability that actually prevents them from, from doing their role. Um, however, then they've got to find them something else to do. My point is, obviously, you've got to talk to the individual and ask around, obviously, what they feel and what they want and what they need and, and, and go through a process to see if they can do it, as opposed to just saying no. And one thing I think has been critical learning for me personally is that the way we look after one another within our organizations with all our um, individualities our um, sometimes disabilities sometimes just differences um, if we do that well we'll look after our patients much better and there is an impact on patient care isn't there one of the things that's become prominent in the last couple of years since we chatted is that I was going to say uh, movement, perhaps movement's the wrong word, but the awareness of the importance of civility in emergency care uh, mm-hmm. and the importance of actually if you if we're uh, kind and civil towards one another, um, we're far more likely to get a, a good team working together. And if you get a good team working together, you're more likely to get a better outcome for your patient. Absolutely. And it's a sense of belonging as well, isn't it? You know, if, if there's an individual that has a disability that doesn't feel as though he belongs because of the way that it's been treated, that's going to affect their mental health, ultimately affect their mood and affect patient care as they come into work, so to speak. And some people may argue against that, and that's absolutely fine, and say, no, they won't. But, I mean, I've seen that happen where it affects an individual, and it's like you say, you know, it's, it's listening to people, and it's that one team ethos as well, you know, and ultimately doing the best for your patients. Yeah, yeah. And and that, for me, is why the issue of, of diversity is so important for the College of Paramedics as a professional body, as the professional body for paramedics to address, because you know, we aspire to the, the highest professional standards in, in, in patient care. Uh, and, in, and to do that, I think we have to aspire to the highest standards in looking after one another, looking out for one another, understanding our issues, whether it's mental health, colour, race, disability, gender, sexual orientation. I've probably missed some out, but the point is we're all different, aren't we? We are all different, but you've just embodied everything within the NHS constitution, you know. Oh, good. No, but when we we go look after patients, you know, we don't look at their colour or their social status, etc. you know, where they come from, have they got a disability, the colour, sex, creed, whatever, so to speak, we go to look after that person because they're called for help. It should not yeah. make a mind bit of difference what they are. And that yeah. starts with us as well. We've got to accept each other for what they are. 
I don't look mm. at anyone and speaking to a colleague and thinking, oh, this is my white colleague, Gary. Yo, Gary. <laughs> you know, and I'm missing, so to speak. You know, colour doesn't come into it, so to speak. So when we start labelling each other, um, you know, that's wrong. But I suppose people just have different views, you know, and we've come a long way. Um, and nothing's perfect, you know. I'm not going to say everything has been perfect in my career. I've seen lots of horrific things and stuff, but if we can learn from each other, make things better, ultimately that, you know, involves us working to, like you said, you know, the highest of standards um, and delivering excellent, excellent patient care. You might just have answered my final question because I've got a question here that really says to you, um, if you could change one thing about the paramedic profession going forward, what would it be? Let me have a think. Um, for me, personally, what I'd like the paramedic profession to be in the future is just for them to look around and call out, you know, something if something is wrong, that, you know, they're in the presence of or something is said, for them to call it out because we're all responsible, you know, for calling things out. Um, and I don't mean it in a nasty way, but if sometimes someone says something and you find it uncomfortable, and I've been guilty of this in the past where you won't say anything, call it out. Ask them what they mean, but then also question what you can't see. So you walk into a room, as I have done many, many times, and I don't really see no diversity, and that's not just around BME people. That involves, obviously, you know, not seeing enough women in the room, uh, etc. and foremost, and just have a think about that and see what you can do to change it. Thanks, Izzy. That, that's a really powerful message. It, it reminds me of um, a, a quote that, that that's very challenging, but I love it. Uh, and, and a lot of our listeners will know this, is the, the, the phrase is the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. Exactly. Uh, and it was actually, um, it, it came about when a chap called David Morrison uh, used it as part of his campaign about gender equality in the Australian yeah. army. Yeah. But if you, anybody wants to Google that, you can watch David Morrison's uh, original video. Uh, and it's true, isn't it? If we, if we don't say anything and um, things will stay as they are, um, we've, we've, we've some distance forward but we've got a long way to go yeah. um i am encouraged that uh we've, we've got you as the chair of um uh, an inspiring uh, group of individuals who uh, want to um make sure that we are looking after the diverse needs of all our members and indeed of the whole profession so um yeah I, i'm gonna say thanks thanks for your time izzy thanks for your yeah. input um your, your passion and, and energy and also uh, really for your honesty because you you've showed us how um you know the last 12 weeks or so you, you you've had a lot of struggles to deal with but uh i, I think the, this vision for what we can be as a profession uh, hopefully has, has, has helped you get through and, and, and helps the rest of us look forward absolutely and thank you guys for taking the time to listen and just one last note which is just be kind and thank you thank you izzy thank you Thanks. bye for now bye-bye Paramedic Insight Podcast from the College of Paramedics.